Welcome to Naxos Audiobooks. We offer high-quality, award-winning titles from some of the world's greatest authors and narrators. From classics to non-fiction to stories for children, there's something to suit every taste. Available from all good audiobook retailers or visit naxosaudiobooks.com. Naxos Audiobooks, bringing great literature to life. Hello, John Lowe here. You might know me from presenting our very popular Senior Times Classical Collection in association with Naxos. I'm now pleased to report a further exciting collaboration with Naxos from their audiobooks, which you have just heard about. From now, we will be regularly featuring excerpts from the vast Naxos catalogue. Our first Naxos audiobook presentation features two stories from Dubliners by James Joyce and two chapters from A Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith. Dubliners, as you may know, is a collaboration of short stories about the lives of people of Dublin around the turn of the 20th century. Each story describes a small but significant moment of crisis or revelation in the life of a particular Dubliner, sympathetically but always with stark honesty. Many of the characters are desperate to escape the confines of their humdrum lives, though those that have the opportunity to do so seem unable to take it. These stories introduce us to a city which fed Joyce's entire creative output and to many of the characters who made it such a well of literary inspiration. Rich in humour and musical allusion, they contain some of Joyce's most powerful and moving prose. The Dubliner stories are read by Jim Norton, one of Ireland's most distinguished actors who has featured regularly in Joycean work, particularly Ulysses, during his long career in film, television, radio and the theatre. Brought up in Dublin, he spent his early acting years in Irish radio. He now divides his time between London and Hollywood, where among his many parts he has played the role of Einstein in the popular TV series Star Trek. He has also recorded Seven Pillars of Wisdom by T.E. Lawrence and Ulysses for Naxos audiobooks. The two chapters of A Diary of Nobody are read by Martin Jarvis. This delightful Victorian comic diary is a classic of English humour which has never been out of print since its first publication in 1892. City clerk Charles Pooter asks, why should I not publish my diary because I do not happen to be a somebody? He proceeds to catalogue all the social clangers he makes unwittingly as he bumbles his way through life, yet sympathy develops for Pooter in the face of it all. Martin Jarvis starred as Jeeves in By Jeeves on Broadway in 2001. His films include the Oscar-winning Titanic. He has made countless television appearances in Britain and America, including The Inspector Lindley Mysteries, Lorna Doon, A Touch of Frost, Murder, She Wrote, and David Copperfield. He is uniquely a recipient of the British Talkie Award and the U.S. Audio Award.
Dubliners by James Joyce. The Sisters There was no hope for him this time. It was the third stroke. Night after night I had passed the house, it was vacation time, and studied the lighted square of window. And night after night I had found it lighted in the same way, faintly and evenly. If he was dead, I thought, I would see the reflection of candles on the darkened blind, for I knew that two candles must be set at the head of a corpse. He had often said to me, I am not long for this world, and I had thought his words idle. Now I knew they were true. Every night, as I gazed up at the window, I said softly to myself the word paralysis. It had always sounded strangely in my ears, like the word gnomon in the Euclid and the word simony in the Catechism. But now it sounded to me like the name of some maleficent and sinful being. It filled me with fear, and yet I longed to be nearer to it and to look upon its deadly work. Old Cotter was sitting at the fire smoking when I came downstairs to supper. While my aunt was ladling out my stirabout, he said, as if returning to some former remark of his, No, I wouldn't say he was exactly, but there was something queer, there was something uncanny about him. I'll tell you my opinion. He began to puff at his pipe, no doubt arranging his opinion in his mind. Tiresome old fool. When we knew him first, he used to be rather interesting, talking of faints and worms. But I soon grew tired of him and his endless stories about the distillery. I have my own theory about it, he said. I think it was one of those peculiar cases. But it's hard to say. He began to puff again at his pipe without giving us his theory. My uncle saw me staring and said to me, Well, so your old friend is gone, you'll be sorry to hear. Who? said I. Father Flynn. Is he dead? Mr. Cotter here has just told us he was passing by the house. I knew that I was under observation, so I continued eating as if the news had not interested me. My uncle explained to old Cotter, The youngster and he were great friends. The old chap taught him a great deal, mind you, and they say he had a great wish for him. God have mercy on his soul, said my aunt piously. Old Cotter looked at me for a while. I felt that his little beady black eyes were examining me, but I would not satisfy him by looking up from my plate. He returned to his pipe and finally spat rudely into the grate. I wouldn't like children of mine, he said, to have too much to say to a man like that. How do you mean, Mr. Cotter? asked my aunt. What I mean is said old Cotter. It's bad for children. My idea is, let a young lad run about and play with young lads of his own age, and not be... <clears throat> Am I right, Jack? That's my principle, too, said my uncle. Let him learn to box his corner. That's what I'm always saying to that Rosicrucian there. Take exercise. Why, when I was a nipper, every morning in my life, I had a cold bath. Winter and summer. And that's what stands to me now. Education is all very fine and large. Mr. Cotter might take a pick of that leg of mutton, he added to my aunt. No, no, not for me, said old Cotter. My aunt brought the dish from the safe and put it on the table. But why do you think it's not good for children, Mr. Cotter? she asked. 
It's bad for children, said old Cotter, because their minds are so impressionable. When children see things like that, you know, it has an effect. I crammed my mouth with stirabout for fear I might give utterance to my anger. Tiresome old red-nosed imbecile. It was late when I fell asleep. Though I was angry with old Cotter for alluding to me as a child, I puzzled my head to extract meaning from his unfinished sentences. In the dark of my room, I imagined that I saw again the heavy grey face of the paralytic. I drew the blankets over my head and tried to think of Christmas, but the grey face still followed me. It murmured, and I understood that it desired to confess something. I felt my soul receding into some pleasant and vicious region, and there again I found it waiting for me. It began to confess to me in a murmuring voice, and I wondered why it smiled continually, and why the lips were so moist with spittle. But then I remembered that it had died of paralysis, and I felt that I too was smiling feebly, as if to absolve the simoniac of his sin. The next morning after breakfast I went down to look at the little house in Great Britain Street. It was an unassuming shop, registered under the vague name of drapery. The drapery consisted mainly of children's booties and umbrellas, and on ordinary days a notice used to hang in the window saying, Umbrellas Recovered. No notice was visible now, for the shutters were up. A crepe bouquet was tied to the door knocker with ribbon. Two poor women and a telegram boy were reading the card pinned on the crepe. I also approached and read, First of July, 1895, the Reverend James Flynn, formerly of St. Catherine's Church, Mead Street, aged 65 years, R.I.P. The reading of the card persuaded me that he was dead, and I was disturbed to find myself at check. Had he not been dead, I would have gone into the little dark room behind the shop to find him sitting in his armchair by the fire, nearly smothered in his great coat. Perhaps my aunt would have given me a packet of high toast for him, and this present would have roused him from his stupefied doze. It was always I who emptied the packet into his black snuff-box, for his hands trembled too much to allow him to do this without spilling half the snuff about the floor. Even as he raised his large trembling hand to his nose, little clouds of snuff dribbled through his fingers over the front of his coat. It may have been these constant showers of snuff which gave his ancient priestly garments their green faded look, for the red handkerchief, blackened as it always was with the snuff stains of a week with which he tried to brush away the fallen grains, was quite inefficacious. I wished to go in and look at him but I had not the courage to knock. I walked away slowly along the sunny side of the street, reading all the theatrical advertisements in the shop windows as I went. I found it strange that neither I nor the day seemed in a morning mood, and I felt even annoyed at discovering in myself a sensation of freedom, as if I had been freed from something by his death. I wondered at this, for, as my uncle had said the night before, he had taught me a great deal. He had studied in the Irish college in Rome, and he had taught me to pronounce Latin properly. He had told me stories about the catacombs and about Napoleon Bonaparte, and he had explained to me the meaning of the different ceremonies of the Mass and of the different vestments worn by the priest. 
Sometimes he had amused himself by putting difficult questions to me, asking me what one should do in certain circumstances, or whether such and such sins were mortal or venial or only imperfections. His questions showed me how complex and mysterious were certain institutions of the Church, which I had always regarded as the simplest acts. The duties of the priest towards the Eucharist and towards the secrecy of the confessional seemed so grave to me that I wondered how anybody had ever found in himself the courage to undertake them. And I was not surprised when he told me that the fathers of the church had written books as thick as the post office directory and as closely printed as the law notices in the newspaper, elucidating all these intricate questions. Often, when I thought of this, I could make no answer, or only a very foolish and halting one, upon which he used to smile and nod his head twice or thrice. Sometimes he used to put me through the responses of the Mass, which he had made me learn by heart, and as I pattered, he used to smile pensively and nod his head, now and then pushing huge pinches of snuff up each nostril alternately. When he smiled, he used to uncover his big discoloured teeth and let his tongue lie upon his lower lip, a habit which had made me feel uneasy in the beginning of our acquaintance, before I knew him well. As I walked along with the sun, I remembered old Cotter's words and tried to remember what had happened afterwards in the dream. I remembered that I had noticed long velvet curtains and a swinging lamp of antique fashion. I felt that I had been very far away, in some land where the customs were strange, in Persia, I thought. But I could not remember the end of the dream. In the evening... My aunt took me with her to visit the house of mourning. It was after sunset, but the window panes of the houses that looked to the west reflected the tawny gold of a great bank of clouds. Nanny received us in the hall, and as it would have been unseemly to have shouted at her, my aunt shook hands with her for all. The old woman pointed upwards interrogatively, and on my aunt's nodding, proceeded to toil up the narrow staircase before us, her bowed head being scarcely above the level of the banister rail. At the first landing she stopped and beckoned us forward encouragingly towards the open door of the dead room. My aunt went in, and the old woman, seeing that I hesitated to enter, began to beckon to me again repeatedly with her hand. I went in on tiptoe. The room, through the lace end of the blind, was suffused with dusky golden light, amid which the candles looked like pale, thin flames. He had been coffined. Nanny gave the lead, and we three knelt down at the foot of the bed. I pretended to pray, but I could not gather my thoughts because the old woman's mutterings distracted me. I noticed how clumsily her skirt was hooked at the back, and how the heels of her cloth boots were trodden down all to one side. The fancy came to me that the old priest was smiling as he lay there in his coffin. But no. When we rose and went up to the head of the bed, I saw that he was not smiling. There he lay, solemn and copious, vested as for the altar, his large hands loosely retaining a chalice. His face was very truculent, grey and massive, with black cavernous nostrils and circled by a scanty white fur. There was a heavy odour in the room. The flowers. We crossed ourselves and came away. 
In the little room downstairs, we found Eliza seated in his armchair in state. I groped my way towards my usual chair in the corner, while Nanny went to the sideboard and brought out a decanter of sherry and some wine glasses. She set these on the table and invited us to take a little glass of wine. Then, at her sister's bidding, she filled out the sherry into the glasses and passed them to us. She pressed me to take some cream crackers also, but I declined because I thought I would make too much noise eating them. She seemed to be somewhat disappointed at my refusal and went over quietly to the sofa where she sat down behind her sister. No one spoke. We all gazed at the empty fireplace. My aunt waited until Eliza sighed and then said, Ah, well, he's gone to a better world. Eliza sighed again and bowed her head in assent. My aunt fingered the stem of her wine glass before sipping a little. Did he... peacefully? she asked. Oh, quite peacefully, ma'am, said Eliza. You couldn't tell when the breath went out of him. He had a beautiful death, God be praised. And everything? Father O'Rourke was in with him at Tuesday and anointed him and prepared him and all. He knew then. He was quite resigned. He looks quite resigned, said my aunt. That's what the woman we had in to wash him said. She said he just looked as if he was asleep. He looked that peaceful and resigned. No one would think he'd make such a beautiful corpse. Yes, indeed, said my aunt. She sipped a little more from her glass and said, Well, Miss Flynn, at any rate, it must be a great comfort for you to know that you did all you could for him. You were both very kind to him, I must say. Eliza smoothed her dress over her knees. Ah, poor James! she said. God knows we've done all we could, as poor as we are. We wouldn't see him want anything while he was in it. Nanny had leaned her head against the sofa pillow and seemed about to fall asleep. There's poor Nanny, said Eliza, looking at her. She's wore out. All the work we had, she and me, getting in the woman to wash him and then laying him out and then the coffin and then arranging about the mass in the chapel, only for Father O'Rourke, I don't know what we'd done at all. It was him brought us all them flowers and them two candlesticks out of the chapel and wrote out the notice for the free man's genital and took charge of all the papers for the cemetery and poor James's insurance. Wasn't that good of him, said my aunt. Eliza closed her eyes and shook her head slowly. Ah, there's no friends like the old friends, she said, when all is said and done, no friends that a body can trust. Indeed, that's true said my aunt. I'm sure now that he's gone to his eternal reward, he won't forget you and all your kindness to him. Ah, poor James, said Eliza. He was no great trouble to us. You wouldn't hear him in the house any more than now. Still, I know he's gone and all to that. It's when it's all over that you'll miss him, said my aunt. I know that, said Eliza. I won't be bringing him in his cup of beef tea any more, nor you, ma'am, send him his snuff. Ah, poor James. She stopped as if she were communing with the past and then said shrewdly, Mind you, I noticed there was something queer coming over him latterly. Whenever I'd bring in his soup to him there, I'd find him with his breviary falling to the floor, lying back in the chair and his mouth open. She laid a finger against her nose and frowned. 
Then she continued. But still in all, he kept on saying that before the summer was over, he'd go out for a drive one fine day just to see the old house again, where we were all born down in Irish town, and take me and Nanny with him. If we could only get one of them newfangled carriages that makes no noise, that Father O'Rourke told him about, then with the rheumatic wheels, for the day cheap, he said, and Johnny rushes over the way there, and drive out the three of us together of a Sunday evening. He had his mind set on that. Poor James. The Lord have mercy on his soul, said my aunt. Eliza took out her handkerchief and wiped her eyes with it. Then she put it back again in her pocket and gazed into the empty grate for some time without speaking. He was too scrupulous always, she said. The duties of the priesthood was too much for him, and then his life was, you might say, crossed. Yes, said my aunt. He was a disappointed man. You could see that. A silence took possession of the little room, and under cover of it I approached the table and tasted my sherry and then returned quietly to my chair in the corner. Eliza seemed to have fallen into a deep reverie. We waited respectfully for her to break the silence, and after a long pause she said slowly, It was that chalice he broke. That was the beginning of it. Of course they say it was all right, that it contained nothing, I mean. But still, they say it was the boy's fault. But poor James was so nervous. God be merciful to him. And was that it? said my aunt. I heard something. Eliza nodded. That affected his mind, she said. After that he began to mope by himself, talking to no one and wandering about by himself. So one night he was wanted for to go on a call and they couldn't find him anywhere. They looked high up and low down and still they couldn't see a sight of him anywhere. So then the clerk suggested to try the chapel. So then they got the keys and opened the chapel and the clerk and Father O'Rourke and another priest that was there brought in a light for to look for him. And what do you think? But there he was, sitting up by himself in the dark in his confession box, wide awake and laughing like softly to himself. She stopped suddenly as if to listen. I too listened, but there was no sound in the house. And I knew that the old priest was lying still in his coffin, as we had seen him, solemn and truculent in death, an idle chalice on his breast. Eliza resumed, wide awake and laughing like to himself. So then, of course, when they saw that, that made them think that there was something gone wrong with him.
Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Are you interested in trying a new smartphone but still a little unsure? Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie. Doro, make friends with innovation. Dubliners by James Joyce. A painful case. Mr. James Duffy lived in Chapel Lizard because he wished to live as far as possible from the city of which he was a citizen and because he found all the other suburbs of Dublin mean, modern and pretentious. He lived in an old, sombre house, and from his windows he could look into the disused distillery or upwards along the shallow river on which Dublin is built. The lofty walls of his uncarpeted room were free from pictures. He had himself bought every article of furniture in the room. A black iron bedstead, an iron washstand, four cane chairs, a clothes rack, a coal scuttle, a fender and irons, and a square table on which lay a double desk. A bookcase had been made in an alcove by means of shelves of white wood. The bed was clothed with white bedclothes, and a black and scarlet rug covered the foot. A little hand mirror hung above the washstand, and during the day a white-shaded lamp stood as the sole ornament of the mantelpiece. The books on the white wooden shelves were arranged from below upwards according to bulk. A complete Wordsworth stood at one end of the lower shelf, and a copy of the Maynooth Catechism, sewn into the cloth cover of a notebook, stood at one end of the top shelf. Writing materials were always on the desk. In the desk lay a manuscript translation of Hauptmann's Michael Kramer, the stage directions of which were written in purple ink, and a little sheaf of papers held together by a brass pin. In these sheets a sentence was inscribed from time to time, and in an ironical moment the headline of an advertisement for bile beans had been pasted onto the first sheet. On lifting the lid of the desk a faint fragrance escaped, the fragrance of new cedar wood pencils, or a bottle of gum, or of an overripe apple which might have been left there and forgotten. Mr. Duffy abhorred anything which betokened physical or mental disorder. A medieval doctor would have called him Saturnine. His face, which carried the entire tale of his years, was of the brown tint of Dublin streets. On his long and rather large head grew dry black hair, and a tawny moustache did not quite cover an unamiable mouth. His cheekbones also gave his face a harsh character. 
but there was no harshness in the eyes, which, looking at the world from under their tawny eyebrows, gave the impression of a man ever alert to greet a redeeming instinct in others, but often disappointed. He lived at a little distance from his body, regarding his own acts with doubtful side glances. He had an odd autobiographical habit which led him to compose in his mind, from time to time, a short sentence about himself containing a subject in the third person and a predicate in the past tense. He never gave alms to beggars and walked firmly, carrying a stout hazel. He had been for many years cashier of a private bank in Baggett Street. Every morning he came in from Chapel Lizard by tram. At midday he went to Dan Burke's and took his lunch, a bottle of lager beer and a small trayful of arrowroot biscuits. At four o'clock he was set free. He dined in an eating house in George's Street where he felt himself safe from the society of Dublin's gilded youth and where there was a certain plain honesty in the bill of fare. His evenings were spent either before his landlady's piano or roaming about the outskirts of the city. His liking for Mozart's music brought him sometimes to an opera or a concert. These were the only dissipations of his life. He had neither companions nor friends, church nor creed. He lived his spiritual life without any communion with others, visiting his relatives at Christmas and escorting them to the cemetery when they died. He performed these two social duties for old dignity's sake, but conceded nothing further to the conventions which regulate the civic life. He allowed himself to think that in certain circumstances he would rob his bank. But as these circumstances never arose, his life rolled out evenly. An adventureless tale. One evening he found himself sitting beside two ladies in the rotunda. The house, thinly peopled and silent, gave distressing prophecy of failure. The lady who sat next to him looked round at the deserted house once or twice and then said, what a pity there's such a poor house tonight. It's so hard on people to have to sing to empty benches. He took the remark as an invitation to talk. He was surprised that she seemed so little awkward. While they talked, he tried to fix her permanently in his memory. When he learned that the young girl beside her was her daughter, he judged her to be a year or so younger than himself. Her face, which must have been handsome, had remained intelligent. It was an oval face with strongly marked features. The eyes were very dark blue and steady. Their gaze began with a defiant note, but it was confused by what seemed a deliberate swoon of the pupil into the iris, revealing for an instant a temperament of great sensibility. The pupil reasserted itself quickly. This half-disclosed nature fell again under the reign of prudence. And her astrakhan jacket, moulding a bosom of a certain fullness, struck the note of defiance more definitely. He met her again a few weeks afterwards at a concert in Ellsford Terrace and seized the moments when her daughter's attention was diverted to become intimate. She alluded once or twice to her husband, but her tone was not such as to make the allusion a warning. Her name was Mrs. Sinico. Her husband's great-great-grandfather had come from Leghorn, her husband was captain of a mercantile boat plying between Dublin and Holland, and they had one child. Meeting her a third time by accident, he found courage to make an appointment. She came. This was the first of many meetings. They met always in the evening and chose the most quiet quarters for their walks together. 
Mr. Duffy, however, had a distaste for underhand ways, and finding that they were compelled to meet stealthily, he forced her to ask him to her house. Captain Sinico encouraged his visits, thinking that his daughter's hand was in question. He had dismissed his wife so sincerely from his gallery of pleasures that he did not suspect that anyone else would take an interest in her. As the husband was often away, and the daughter out giving music lessons, Mr. Duffy had many opportunities of enjoying the lady's society. Neither he nor she had had any such adventure before, and neither was conscious of any incongruity. Little by little, he entangled his thoughts with hers. He lent her books, provided her with ideas, shared his intellectual life with her. She listened to all. Sometimes, in return for his theories, she gave out some fact of her own life. With almost maternal solicitude, she urged him to let his nature open to the full. She became his confessor. He told her that for some time he had assisted at the meetings of an Irish Socialist Party, where he had felt himself a unique figure amidst a score of sober workmen in a garret lit by an inefficient oil lamp. When the party had divided into three sections, each under its own leader and in its own garret, he had discontinued his attendances. The workmen's discussions, he said, were too timorous. The interest they took in the question of wages was inordinate. He felt that they were hard-featured realists and that they resented an exactitude which was the produce of a leisure not within their reach. No social revolution, he told her, would be likely to strike Dublin for some centuries. She asked him why did he not write out his thoughts. For what, he asked her with careful scorn, to compete with phrase-mongers incapable of thinking consecutively for sixty seconds, to submit himself to the criticisms of an obtuse middle class which entrusted its morality to policemen and its fine arts to impresarios. He went often to her little cottage outside Dublin. Often they spent their evenings alone. Little by little, as their thoughts entangled, they spoke of subjects less remote. Her companionship was like a warm soil about an exotic. Many times she allowed the dark to fall upon them, refraining from lighting the lamp. The dark, discreet room, their isolation, the music that still vibrated in their ears, united them. This union exalted him, wore away the rough edges of his character, emotionalized his mental life. Sometimes he caught himself listening to the sound of his own voice. He thought that in her eyes he would ascend to an angelical stature, and as he attached the fervent nature of his companion more and more closely to him, he heard the strange impersonal voice which he recognised as his own, insisting on the soul's incurable loneliness. We cannot give ourselves, it said. We are our own. The end of these discourses was that one night, during which she had shown every sign of unusual excitement, Mrs. Sinico caught up his hand passionately and pressed it to her cheek. Mr. Duffy was very much surprised. Her interpretation of his words disillusioned him. He did not visit her for a week. Then he wrote to her, asking her to meet him. As he did not wish their last interview to be troubled by the influence of their ruined confessional, they met in a little cake shop near the park gate. It was cold autumn weather, but in spite of the cold, they wandered up and down the roads of the park for nearly three hours. They agreed to break off their intercourse. Every bond, he said, 
is a bond to sorrow. When they came out of the park, they walked in silence towards the tram. But here she began to tremble so violently that, fearing another collapse on her part, he bade her good-bye quickly and left her. A few days later he received a parcel containing his books and music. Four years passed. Mr. Duffy returned to his even way of life. His room still bore witness of the orderliness of his mind. Some new pieces of music encumbered the music stand in the lower room, and on the shelves stood two volumes of Nietzsche, Thus Spake Zarathustra and The Gay Science. He wrote seldom in the sheaf of papers which lay in his desk. One of his sentences, written two months after his last interview with Mrs. Sinico, read, Love between man and man is impossible, because there must not be sexual intercourse. And friendship between man and woman is impossible, because there must be sexual intercourse. He kept away from concerts, lest he should meet her. His father died. The junior partner of the bank retired. And still every morning he went into the city by tram, and every evening walked home from the city after having dined moderately in George's Street and read the evening paper for dessert. One evening, as he was about to put a morsel of corned beef and cabbage into his mouth, his hand stopped. His eyes fixed themselves on a paragraph in the evening paper which he had propped against the water carafe. He replaced the morsel of food on his plate and read the paragraph attentively. Then he drank a glass of water, pushed his plate to one side, doubled the paper down before him between his elbows, and read the paragraph over and over again. The cabbage began to deposit a cold white grease on his plate. The girl came over to him to ask was his dinner not properly cooked. He said it was very good and ate a few mouthfuls of it with difficulty. Then he paid his bill and went out. He walked along quickly through the November twilight, his stout hazel stick striking the ground regularly, the fringe of the buff mail peeping out of the side pocket of his tight reefer overcoat. On the lonely road, which leads from the park gate to Chapel Lizard, he slackened his pace. His stick struck the ground less emphatically, and his breath issuing irregularly, almost with a sighing sound, condensed in the wintry air. When he reached his house, he went up at once to his bedroom, and taking the paper from his pocket, read the paragraph again by the failing light of the window. He read it not aloud, but moving his lips as a priest does when he reads the prayers secreto. This was the paragraph. Death of a lady at Sydney Parade. A painful case. Today, at the City of Dublin Hospital, the Deputy Coroner, in the absence of Mr. Leverett, held an inquest on the body of Mrs. Emily Sinico, aged 43 years, who was killed at Sydney Parade Station yesterday evening. The evidence showed that the deceased lady, while attempting to cross the line, was knocked down by the engine of the 10 o'clock slow train from Kingstown, thereby sustaining injuries of the head and right side, which led to her death. James Lennon, driver of the engine, stated that he had been in the employment of the railway company for 15 years. On hearing the guard's whistle, he set the train in motion, and a second or two afterwards brought it to rest in response to loud cries. The train was going slowly. P. Dunn, railway porter, stated that as the train was about to start, he observed a woman attempting to cross the lines. 
He ran towards her and shouted, but before he could reach her, she was caught by the buffer of the engine and fell to the ground. A juror, you saw the lady fall? Witness, yes. Police Sergeant Crowley deposed that when he arrived, he found the deceased lying on the platform, apparently dead. He had the body taken to the waiting room, pending the arrival of the ambulance. Constable 57 corroborated. Dr. Halpin, assistant house surgeon of the City of Dublin Hospital, stated that the deceased had two lower ribs fractured and had sustained severe contusions of the right shoulder. The right side of the head had been injured in the fall. The injuries were not sufficient to have caused death in a normal person. Death, in his opinion, had been probably due to shock and sudden failure of the heart's action. Mr. H.B. Patterson Finlay, on behalf of the railway company, expressed his deep regret at the accident. The company had always taken every precaution to prevent people crossing the lines except by the bridges, both by placing notices in every station and by the use of patent spring gates at level crossings. The deceased had been in the habit of crossing the lines late at night from platform to platform, and in view of certain other circumstances of the case, he did not think the railway officials were to blame. Captain Sinico of Leoville, Sydney Parade, husband of the deceased, also gave evidence. He stated that the deceased was his wife. He was not in Dublin at the time of the accident, as he had arrived only that morning from Rotterdam. They had been married for 22 years and had lived happily until about two years ago, when his wife began to be rather intemperate in her habits. Miss Mary Sinico said that of late her mother had been in the habit of going out at night to buy spirits. She, witness, had often tried to reason with her mother and had induced her to join a league. She was not at home until an hour after the accident. The jury returned a verdict in accordance with the medical evidence and exonerated Lennon from all blame. The deputy coroner said it was a most painful case and expressed great sympathy with Captain Sinico and his daughter. He urged on the railway company to take strong measures to prevent the possibility of similar accidents in the future. No blame attached to anyone. Mr. Duffy raised his eyes from the paper and gazed out of his window on the cheerless evening landscape. The river lay quiet beside the empty distillery and from time to time a light appeared in some house on the Lucan Road. What an end! The whole narrative of her death revolted him and it revolted him to think that he had ever spoken to her of what he held sacred. The threadbare phrases, the inane expressions of sympathy, the cautious words of a reporter, won over to conceal the details of a commonplace vulgar death, attacked his stomach. Not merely had she degraded herself, she had degraded him. He saw the squalid tract of her vice, miserable and malodorous, his soul's companion. He thought of the hobbling wretches whom he had seen carrying cans and bottles to be filled by the barman. Just God, what an end! Evidently she had been unfit to live, without any strength of purpose, an easy prey to habits, one of the wrecks on which civilization has been reared. But that she could have sunk so low. Was it possible he had deceived himself so utterly about her? He remembered her outbursts of that night, and interpreted it in a harsher sense than he had ever done. He had no difficulty now in approving of the course he had taken. As the light failed and his memory began to wander, he thought her hand touched his. The shock, which at first attacked his stomach, was now attacking his nerves. 
He put on his overcoat and hat quickly and went out. The cold air met him on the threshold. It crept into the sleeves of his coat. When he came to the public house at Chapel Lizard Bridge, he went in and ordered a hot punch. The proprietor served him obsequiously, but did not venture to talk. There were five or six working men in the shop discussing the value of a gentleman's estate in County Gildare. They drank at intervals from their huge pint tumblers and smoked, spitting often on the floor and sometimes dragging the sawdust over their spits with their heavy boots. Mr. Duffy sat on his stool and gazed at them without seeing or hearing them. After a while they went out and he called for another punch. He sat a long time over it. The shop was very quiet. The proprietor sprawled on the counter, reading the Herald and yawning. Now and again a tram was heard, swishing along the lonely road outside. As he sat there, living over his life with her, and evoking alternately the two images in which he now conceived her, he realized that she was dead, that she had ceased to exist, that she had become a memory. He began to feel ill at ease. He asked himself what else could he have done. He could not have carried on a comedy of deception with her. He could not have lived with her openly. He had done what seemed to him best. How was he to blame? Now that she was gone, he understood how lonely her life must have been, sitting night after night alone in that room. His life would be lonely too, until he too died, ceased to exist, became a memory if anyone remembered him. It was after nine o'clock when he left the shop. The night was cold and gloomy. He entered the park by the first gate and walked along under the gaunt trees. He walked through the bleak alleys where they had walked four years before. She seemed to be near him in the darkness. At moments he seemed to feel her voice touch his ear, her hand touch his. He stood still to listen. Why had he withheld life from her? Why had he sentenced her to death? He felt his moral nature falling to pieces. When he gained the crest of the magazine hill, he halted and looked along the river towards Dublin, the lights of which burned redly and hospitably in the cold night. He looked down the slope, and at the base, in the shadow of the wall of the park, he saw some human figures lying. Those venal and furtive loves filled him with despair. He gnawed the rectitude of his life. He felt that he had been outcast from life's feast. One human being had seemed to love him and he had denied her life and happiness. He had sentenced her to ignominy, a death of shame. He knew that the prostrate creatures down by the wall were watching him and wished him gone. No one wanted him. He was outcast from life's feast. He turned his eyes to the grey, gleaming river winding along towards Dublin. Beyond the river, he saw a goods train winding out of Kingsbridge Station like a worm with a fiery head winding through the darkness obstinately and laboriously. It passed slowly out of sight. But still he heard in his ears the laborious drone of the engine reiterating the syllables of her name. He turned back the way he had come, the rhythm of the engine pounding in his ears. He began to doubt the reality of what memory told him. He halted under a tree 
and allowed the rhythm to die away. He could not feel her near him in the darkness, nor her voice touch his ear. He waited for some minutes, listening. He could hear nothing. The night was perfectly silent. He listened again, perfectly silent. He felt that he was alone. It is not while beauty and youth are thine own, and thy cheek unprofaned by a tear, that the fervor and faith of a soul can be The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith. Read by Martin Jarvis. Introduction by Mr. Pooter. Why should I not publish my diary? I have often seen reminiscences of people I've never even heard of, and I fail to see, because I do not happen to be a somebody, why my diary should not be interesting. My only regret is that I did not commence it when I was a youth. Charles Pooter, The Laurels, Brickfield Terrace, Holloway. Chapter One My dear wife Carrie and I have just been a week in our new house, the Laurels, Brickfield Terrace, Holloway, a nice six-roomed residence, not counting basement, with a front breakfast parlour. We have a little front garden, and there is a flight of ten steps up to the front door, which, by the by, we keep locked with the chain up. Cummings... Gowing and our other intimate friends always come to the little side entrance, which saves the servant the trouble of going up to the front door, thereby taking her from her work. We have a nice little back garden, which runs down to the railway. We were rather afraid of the noise of the trains at first, but the landlord said we should not notice them after a bit, and took two pounds off the rent. He was certainly right, and beyond the cracking of the garden wall at the bottom, we have suffered no inconvenience. After my work in the city, I like to be at home. What's the good of a home if you are never in it? Home, sweet home. That's my motto. I am always in of an evening. Our old friend Gowing may drop in without ceremony. So may Cummings, who lives opposite. My dear wife Caroline and I are pleased to see them if they like to drop in on us but Carrie and I can manage to pass our evenings together without friends. There is always something to be done, a tin tack here, a Venetian blind to put straight, a fan to nail up, or part of a carpet to nail down, all of which I could do with my pipe in my mouth. While Carrie is not above putting a button on a shirt, mending a pillowcase, 
or practising the Sylvia Gavotte on our new cottage piano on the three-years system, manufactured by W. Bilkson, in small letters, from Collard and Collard, in very large letters. It is also a great comfort to us to know that our boy Willie is getting on so well in the bank at Oldham. We should like to see more of him. Now for my diary. April the 3rd. Tradesman called for custom, and I promised Farmerson, the ironmonger, to give him a turn if I wanted any nails or tools. By the by, that reminds me there is no key to our bedroom door, and the bells must be seen to. The parlour bell is broken, and the front door rings up in the servant's bedroom, which is ridiculous. Dear friend Gowing dropped in, but wouldn't stay, saying there was an infernal smell of paint. April the 4th. Tradesman still calling. Carrie being out, I arranged to deal with Horwin, who seemed a civil butcher with a nice clean shop. Ordered a shoulder of mutton for tomorrow to give him a trial. Carrie arranged with Borset the butterman and ordered a pound of fresh butter and a pound and a half of salt ditto for kitchen and a shilling's worth of eggs. In the evening, Cummings unexpectedly dropped in to show me a Meerschaum pipe he had won in a raffle in the city and told me to handle it carefully as it would spoil the colouring if the hand was moist. He said he wouldn't stay as he didn't care much for the smell of the paint and fell over the scraper as he went out. Must get the scraper removed, or else I shall get into a scrape. <laughs> I don't often make jokes. April the 5th. Two shoulders of mutton arrived, Carrie having arranged with another butcher without consulting me. Gowing called and fell over scraper coming in. Must get that scraper removed. April the 6th. Eggs for breakfast simply shocking. Sent them back to Borset with my compliments and he needn't call any more for orders. Couldn't find umbrella, and though it was pouring with rain, had to go without it. Sarah said, Mr Gowing must have took it by mistake last night as there was a stick in the all that didn't belong to nobody. In the evening, hearing someone talking in a loud voice to the servant in the downstairs hall, I went out to see who it was and was surprised to find it was Borset the butterman, who was both drunk and offensive. Borset, on seeing me, said he would be hanged if he would ever serve city clerks any more. The game wasn't worth the candle. I restrained my feelings and quietly remarked that I thought it was possible for a city clerk to be a gentleman. He replied he was very glad to hear it and wanted to know whether I had ever come across one, for he hadn't. He left the house, slamming the door after him, which nearly broke the fanlight, and I heard him fall over the scraper, which made me feel glad I hadn't removed it. When he had gone, I thought of a splendid answer I ought to have given him. However, I will keep it for another occasion. April the 7th. Being Saturday, I looked forward to being home early and putting a few things straight, but two of our principals at the office were absent through illness and I did not get home till seven. Found Borset waiting. He had been three times during the day to apologise for his conduct last night. He said he was unable to take his bank holiday last Monday and took it last night instead. 
he begged me to accept his apology and a pound of fresh butter. He seems, after all, a decent sort of fellow, so I gave him an order for some fresh eggs, with a request that on this occasion they should be fresh. I am afraid we shall have to get some new stair carpets after all. Our old ones are not quite wide enough to meet the paint on either side. Carrie suggests that we might ourselves broaden the paint. I will see if we can match the colour, dark chocolate, on Monday. April the 8th, Sunday. After church, the curate came back with us. I sent Carrie in to open front door, which we do not use except on special occasions. She could not get it open, and after all my display, I had to take the curate, whose name, by the by, I did not catch, round the side entrance. He caught his foot in the scraper and tore the bottom of his trousers. Most annoying, as Carrie could not well offer to repair them on a Sunday. After dinner, went to sleep. Took a walk round the garden and discovered a beautiful spot for sowing mustard and cress and radishes. Went to church again in the evening. Walked back with the curate. Carrie noticed he had got on the same pair of trousers, only repaired. He wants me to take round the plate, which I think a great compliment. Chapter 2 April the 9th Commenced the morning badly. The butcher, whom we decided not to arrange with, called and blackguarded me in the most uncalled-for manner. He began by abusing me and saying he did not want my custom. I simply said, Then what are you making all this fuss about it for? and he shouted out at the top of his voice so that all the neighbours could hear, Pa, go along, ugh, I could buy up things like you by the dozen. I shut the door and was giving Carrie to understand that this disgraceful scene was entirely her fault when there was a violent kicking at the door enough to break the panels. It was the blackguard butcher again, who said he had cut his foot over the scraper and would immediately bring an action against me. Called at Farmerson's, the ironmonger, on my way to town, and gave him the job of moving the scraper and repairing the bells, thinking it scarcely worthwhile to trouble the landlord with such a trifling matter. Arrived home, tired and worried. Mr. Putley, a painter and decorator who had sent in a card, said he could not match the colour on the stairs, as it contained Indian carmine. He said he spent half a day calling at warehouses to see if he could get it. He suggested he should entirely repaint the stairs. It would cost very little more. If he tried to match it, he could only make a bad job of it. It would be more satisfactory to him and to us to have the work done properly. I consented, but felt I had been talked over. Planted some mustard and cress and radishes and went to bed at nine. April the 10th. Farmerson came round to attend to the scraper himself. He seems a very civil fellow. 
He says he does not usually conduct such small jobs personally, but for me he would do so. I thanked him and went to town. It is disgraceful how late some of the young clerks are at arriving. I told three of them that if Mr Perkup, the principal, heard of it, they might be discharged. Pitt, a monkey of seventeen who has only been with us six weeks, told me to keep my hair on. I informed him I had had the honour of being in the firm twenty years, to which he insolently replied that I looked it. I gave him an indignant look and said, I demand from you some respect, sir. He replied, All right, go on demanding. I would not argue with him any further. You cannot argue with people like that. In the evening, Gowing called and repeated his complaint about the smell of paint. Gowing is sometimes very tedious with his remarks and not always cautious, and Carrie once, very properly, reminded him that she was present. April the 11th. Mustard and cress and radishes not come up yet. Today was a day of annoyances. I missed the quarter-to-nine bus to the city through having words with the grocer's boy, who for the second time had the impertinence to bring his basket to the hall door and had left the marks of his dirty boots on the fresh-cleaned doorsteps. He said he had knocked at the side door with his knuckles for a quarter of an hour. I knew Sarah, our servant, could not hear this as she was upstairs doing the bedrooms, so asked the boy why he did not ring the bell. He replied that he did pull the bell, but the handle came off in his hand. I was half an hour late at the office, a thing that has never happened to me before. There has recently been much irregularity in the attendance of the clerks, and Mr Perkup, our principal, unfortunately chose this very morning to pounce down upon us early. Someone had given the tip to the others. The result was that I was the only one late of the lot. Buckling, one of the senior clerks, was a brick, and I was saved by his intervention. As I passed by Pitt's desk, I heard him remark to his neighbour how disgracefully late some of the head clerks arrive. This was, of course, meant for me. I treated the observation with silence, simply giving him a look, which unfortunately had the effect of making both of the clerks laugh. Thought afterwards it would have been more dignified if I had pretended not to have hurt him at all. Cummings called in the evening, and we played dominoes. April the 12th. Mustard and cress and radishes not come up yet. Left Farmerson repairing the scraper, but when I came home found three men working. I asked the meaning of it, and Farmerson said that in making a fresh hole he had penetrated the gas pipe. He said it was a most ridiculous place to put the gas pipe, and the man who did it evidently knew nothing about his business. I felt his excuse was no consolation for the expense I should be put to. In the evening, after tea, Gowing dropped in, and we had a smoke together in the breakfast parlour. Carrie joined us later, but did not stay long, saying the smoke was too much for her. It was also rather too much for me, for Gowing had given me what he called a green cigar, one that his friend Schumach had just brought over from America. The cigar didn't look green, but I fancy I must have done so, for when I had smoked a little more than half, 
I was obliged to retire on the pretext of telling Sarah to bring in the glasses. I took the garden three or four times, feeling the need of fresh air. On returning, Gowing noticed I was not smoking, offered me another cigar, which I politely declined. Gowing began his usual sniffing, so anticipating him, I said, "'You're not going to complain of the smell of paint again?' He said, "'No, not this time, but I'll tell you what, I distinctly smell dry rot.' I don't often make jokes, but I replied, "'You're talking a lot of dry rot yourself.' I could not help roaring at this, and Carrie said her sides quite ached with laughter. I was never so immensely tickled by anything I have ever said before. I actually woke up twice during the night, and laughed till the bed shook. April the 13th. An extraordinary coincidence. Carrie had called in a woman to make some chintz covers for our drawing-room chairs and sofa to prevent the sun fading the green rep of the furniture. I saw the woman and recognised her as a woman who used to work years ago for my old aunt at Clapham. It only shows how small the world is. April the 14th. Spent the whole of the afternoon in the garden, having this morning picked up at a bookstall for fivepence, a capital little book in good condition on gardening. I procured and sowed some half-hardy annuals in what I fancy will be a warm, sunny border. I thought of a joke and called out Carrie. Carrie came out rather testy, I thought. I said, I have just discovered we have got a lodging house. She replied, How do you mean? I said, Look at the borders. Carrie said, Is that all you wanted me for? I said, Any other time you would have laughed at my little pleasantry. Carrie said, Certainly at any other time, but not when I am busy in the house. The stairs looked very nice. Gowing called and said the stairs looked all right, but it made the banisters look all wrong and suggested a coat of paint on them also, which Carrie quite agreed with. I walked round to Putley, and fortunately he was out, so I had a good excuse to let the banisters slide. By the by, that is rather funny. April 15th, Sunday. At three o'clock, Cummings and Gowing called for a good long walk over Hampstead and Finchley, and brought with them a friend named Stillbrook. We walked and chatted together, except Stillbrook, who was always a few yards behind us, staring at the ground and cutting at the grass with his stick. As it was getting on for five, we four held a consultation, and Gowing suggested that we should make for the cow and hedge and get some tea. Stillbrook said a brandy and soda was good enough for him. I reminded them that all public houses were closed till six o'clock. Stillbrook said, that's all right, bona fide travellers. We arrived, and as I was trying to pass, the man in charge of the gate said, where from? I replied, Holloway. He immediately put up his arm and declined to let me pass. I turned back for a moment when I saw Stillbrook, closely followed by Cummings and Gowing, make for the entrance. 
I watched them and thought I would have a good laugh at their expense. I heard the porter say, where from, when, to my surprise, in fact disgust, Stillbrook replied, Blackheath, and the three were immediately admitted. Gowing called to me across the gate and said, We shan't be a minute. I waited for them the best part of an hour. When they appeared, they were all in most excellent spirits, and the only one who made an effort to apologise was Mr Stillbrook, who said to me, It was very rough on you to be kept waiting, but we had another spin for S&Bs. I walked home in silence. I couldn't speak to them. I felt very dull all the evening, but deemed it advisable not to say anything to Carrie about the matter. April the 16th. After business, set to work in the garden. When it got dark, I wrote to Cummings and Gowing, who neither called for a wonder, perhaps they were ashamed of themselves, about yesterday's adventure at the Cow and Hedge. Afterwards, made up my mind not to write yet. April 17th. Thought I would write a kind little note to Gowing and Cummings about last Sunday and warning them against Mr Stillbrook. Afterwards, thinking the matter over, tore up the letters and determined not to write at all, but to speak quietly to them. Dumbfounded at receiving a sharp letter from Cummings, saying that both he and Gowing had been waiting for an explanation of my, mind you, my extraordinary conduct coming home on Sunday. At last I wrote... I thought I was the aggrieved party, but as I freely forgive you, you, feeling yourself aggrieved, should bestow forgiveness on me. I've copied this verbatim in the diary, because I think it is one of the most perfect and thoughtful sentences I have ever written. I posted the letter, but in my own heart I felt I was actually apologising for having been insulted. April the 18th. Am in for a cold. Spent the whole day at the office sneezing. In the evening, the cold, being intolerable, sent Sarah out for a bottle of Kinahan. Fell asleep in the armchair and woke with the shivers. Was startled by a loud knock at the front door. Carrie awfully flurried. Sarah still out, so went up, opened the door and found it was only Cummings. Remembered the grocer's boy had again broken the side bell. Cummings squeezed my hand and said, I've just seen Gowing. All right, say no more about it. There is no doubt they are both under the impression I have apologised. While playing dominoes with Cummings in the parlour, he said, By the by, do you want any wine or spirits? My cousin Merton has just set up in the trade and has a splendid whisky, four years in bottle, at thirty-eight shillings. It is worth your while laying down a few dozen of it. I told him my cellars, which were very small, were full up. To my horror, at that very moment, Sarah entered the room and, putting a bottle of whisky wrapped in a dirty piece of newspaper on the table in front of us, said, Please, sir, the grocer says he ain't got no more kinahan, but you'll find this very good at two and six, with tuppence returned on the bottle. And please, did you want any more sherry, as he has some at one and three, as dry as a nut?
We hope you've enjoyed this first Senior Times audiobooks presentation in association with Naxos Audiobooks and that it's whetted your appetite to investigate what's available in the vast Naxos catalogue. Naxos Audiobooks, like their classical music recordings, are all very reasonably priced and are available from all good bookshops such as Eason's and Hodge Figgis or visit naxosaudiobooks.com. This is John Lowe wishing you happy listening, but before I go, I'd like to thank Andy Sison of Naxos Audiobooks and my producer, Connor O'Hagan, for their invaluable assistance. Phone poke and nuoet, on will knappy no fum nis orjoet, nis eskalehusaj, faker no phone in tokata gwin, on cho, egg daro, on von klishte is dani, gidi gohon la hai glinna, agus taskina, tarod egen gogachtina, tanismo olis egg daro dot com.